0: Dave, thank you for being on the podcast.
1: Hey, great to be here.
0: Regular listeners already know you, but could you please say a few words about yourself for the first-time listeners?
1: My name is Dave Kellogg. I'm uh, currently running a consulting business and sitting on boards. Uh, I'm on three boards right now, Alation, Nuxeo, and Prophecy. Two are VC-backed, one is PE-backed. Previously, I was CEO of Host Analytics, which we took from $8 million in ARR to $50 million in ARR and sold to a PE firm. Uh, coming up on two years ago. And prior to that, I was a general manager and SVP at Salesforce for a year. Prior to that, I ran a company called MarkLogic from zero to 80 million. And prior to that, I was chief marketing officer of Business Objects as we grew from 30 million to a billion. In addition to the three boards I'm on now, I was on two other boards. One was uh, Data Systems, which we sold to Teradata, and Granular, which we sold to uh, DuPont.
0: Thank you, Dave. So the theme of this episode is the comparison of VC and PE investments in SaaS companies. Throughout your career, you mostly worked with VC funds, but you also had experience working with PE firms as well, right?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think private equity has gotten to be a bigger and bigger part of the software and SaaS world, and I have been increasingly exposed to it as a result. And I think their role in the industry has changed a lot over the past 20 years. So I'd say I'm certainly not an expert on the P.E. side, but, but I've definitely been exposed through fundraising, through selling host analytics and through my board involvement.
0: As you mentioned, the role of P.E. has changed and one of the exit strategies for SaaS companies is exceedingly selling to private equity funds. I was curious, why would VC sell the company they invested in to a P.E. fund instead of continue investing in it?
1: You know, in, in some ways, we need to almost go all the way back to the internet bubble to answer that question. And Sarbanes Oxley and Enron. You know, prior to 2000, software companies went public at around 30 million in revenue. Right, Versant where I worked, went public at 30 million. Business Objects went public at 30 million. Uh, my first job at Ingress, I think we were trying to go public at around 40, but then uh, the stock market crash happened. So we got delayed and we got bigger. But the bar for going public was teeny by today's standards. In my mind, as a result of kind of the excesses of the dot-com bubble, we had what, what I consider to be personally a massive overcompensation to where if you look at the average SaaS IPO last year, it was the rough median trailing 12-month revenue or median implied ARR is on the order of $200 million. So, so these are big companies by historical standards. And by the way, I almost now joke, there's a reason stock options vest over four years because it used to take four to six years to go public, right? Business Objects was founded in, I think, 1990. and went public in 1994. Now it takes 12, 13 years to go public. So what this has done is it's created the need and the opportunity for all these additional rounds of funding, right? You know, I mean, an IPO itself used to be a $100 million round. And I think I saw a B round the other day that was $100 million. Maybe, maybe it was a C round. <laughs> but, like, you know, the C round is the new IPO, and it makes sense. I mean, look, I mean, these $300 billion roughly companies are also raising about $300 billion in capital to get there. Right, uh, And again, in the old days, you might raise 20 30 and then raise 100 in IPO. And by the way, you'd never spend it because you're not supposed to lose money back in those days. So you'd raise $100 million, but you didn't have the right to spend it. It was kind of a crazy time. Whereas now, people are much more interested in investing for growth. Um, the other big difference, I would say, is the quality of the revenue is much higher. A $250 million SaaS company has a $250 million recurring revenue stream, whereas a $30 million perpetual uh, one-shot license company with a $30 million revenue stream. I mean, a lot of people will divide that by either two or three to make it equivalent, right? So you have companies that are much bigger just looking at the numbers and you kind of look beyond the numbers. They're even bigger yet again than that. That's created this whole need for additional types of financing. Because look, in the old days, I think PE firms were known as the people who kind of bought broken companies at fire sale prices and you know, tried to turn them around. In some ways, back in the day, CA was almost like a public PE firm. right? I mean, my first employer, Ingress, I think sold at 0.7 times revenue to CA, 0.7. Right? So they would buy stuff that was broken and then jack up the maintenance. right? It was kind of the, the harbinger of PE. And then independent PE firms kind of did that for a living for a long time and PE kind of had a bad reputation as a result. It was like, oh, you got bought by a PE firm. Something must have gone you know, terribly wrong. Why didn't you go public? But remember, you could go public at $30 million, And now it's a long road to hoe to get to be public. You need to be able to raise $300 bucks to grow to roughly $250 bucks. Takes 13 years. So that's created the opportunity for kind of this, what they call growth equity financing right, or mezzanine financing or, or all these additional rounds. So, so that, that's been the kind of sea change why would a VC firm sell to a PE owner? I mean, I gave you the the big backdrop and maybe the answer is obvious given that backdrop, but the explicit answer to the question is because you've got a company that is nowhere near going public and you are coming up on the end of your fund life. I mean, just say, you know, you founded the fund in 2010, it's now 2020, you had a company that had a good start, then got in trouble, say it's 40 million in ARR today at cash flow break, even growing at 20%. Well, your fund is coming to an end. This thing is not going to go public anytime soon, and, you know, compounding 1.2 you know, <laughs> from 40 is going to be a long, long time before it could ever go public. So how do you get this thing liquid? And the answer is you can either sell it to a strategic if somebody wants to buy it, or you now have this whole new class of buyers who would be interested in buying that company, either to grow it and sell it to somebody else, right? I mean, I'd say that the typical standalone PE business model is buy it today, a 50-50 debt versus equity, sell it in four to six years for two to three times what you paid for it. That's it. That's the default play. <laughs> um, th- there are variations on it, right, where you do a roll-up and you buy lots of little ones or you are very popular. You buy a platform, one big one, and then you buy a bunch of little ones. But the basic math is still the same. You're trying to get a return that's equivalent to uh, basically, what is it, two to three X over four to six years on a 50-50 basis of equity and debt. So that's why they would sell because there's kind of nothing else to do with it <laughs> um, and they need to get liquidity at some point. I mean, I think sometimes entrepreneurs forget that, that these are financial investors and they're in it for a return and VCs can be amazingly patient, but at some point they need to get liquidity. Your next question was like, how are they different in my experience, right? As somebody who spent their time really on the uh, VC side and now getting exposed to the PE world, what are some of the differences? And, and I'll I'll answer first from an operational perspective, and then maybe we can go back and talk about investment. But from an operating perspective, I think there's a number of differences. One is they bring a lot of best practices. The other is you have different board dynamics kind of necessarily necessarily. Well, we'll start with those two. We'll, I think we'll find them out. But but the first thing about PE firms um, is they're big into best practices and whether that's a big firm that will have a staff, right? They may have an internal consulting arm uh, and these people will show up kind of for free and help you optimize your business. And look, I would dare say that philosophically, some PE firms say, hey, that's help. It's available for free. You can use it. Some would say they're showing up on Tuesday, you know, <laughs> and, and, and you're going to be using it and, and you don't have a choice. So while well, I think the thing they have in common is they all care a lot about best practices, you know, from hiring to having their own interview methodology to maybe measuring customer sat, certainly to, to metrics and SAS metrics to how they approach market research potentially, or how you do team building at an executive level, how you make strategy, you know, your go-to-market model, where they're going to show up with experts who will share different dials of voluntariness, um, their best practices with you. So that's one big thing. To be honest, I think it's a great idea. The notion that, hey, we're buying a lot of software companies, we can pattern match across them, we can share best practices across them, and we can actually build a team of experts, right, to kind of be our Staff experts in certain areas, that's a great idea. Rare on the VC side. Andreessen Horowitz had a little bit, right? When they had Mark Cranny as kind of the sales partner, and Jeff Stomp as the people partner, but I don't know how much they do it today still. But in the PE world, it, it's a standard thing. The other thing that's different in a PE firm operationally to me is board dynamics which is, you know, a VC board from a CEO's perspective is, is basically a cat-herding exercise, right? You've got one guy who invested at 10 cents a share six years ago. You've got the guy who did the last round who invested at five bucks a share, you know, two months ago. Their interests are not really aligned and they all have different expectations. They probably underwrote different financial plans and they all have lots of opinions because they're, you know, they're all powerful people. And it can be very hard for the CFO if they don't happen to agree <laughs> On what to do. Uh, And if you, you know, if you go have beers with SaaS company CEOs, you know, you'll definitely hear, oh, gosh, some board members want to go this way and some want to go that way. Uh, It's all, you know, kind of hard. That doesn't happen on a PE board. Now, I would say, by the way, on VC backboards, there tends to be an alpha male, and unfortunately, it usually is a male. We'll call it the alpha person, but there usually emerges one or sometimes two alphas on the board who will drive it, but it doesn't always happen. And usually, that alpha role kind of helps the CEO herd the cats. Often it's the A-round investor, right, because they have the longest history of the company, kind of the biggest risk taker. But not always. I, I've seen companies where it's actually the A-round and the E-round investor, and they kind of partner together and say, we'll, we'll be the alphas leading the board. So uh, you can see that dynamic kind of organically emerge on a VC board. But in the PE board, it's you know there's a, a general partner, an investing partner at the PE firm who sponsored the investment that would be the de facto alpha board member there might be two or three other people from the pe firm on the board as well but they tend to be you know principals vps you know usually not multiple general partners so they're kind of working for if you will the general partner and you may have some independents as well. The independents may have helped the firm with diligence, by the way. Like they may have been part of the transaction and helped the firm decide whether or not to buy the company so they have some continuity and they get asked on the board. So, by the way, if you're selling to a PE firm and there are some experts helping them, they, they might well be your board in six months. So <laughs> be nice. So the dynamic is just super different. And I think for a first-time CEO, it can be very challenging. Well, both situations are challenging. Um, if you're a first-time CEO who's climbed the corporate ladder, so, so not a, a 27-year-old who just started a company, but somebody who actually climbed the ladder, you're used to working for a boss. And one of the hardest things about switching to CEO is you don't have a boss, right? You have a board, and it's a committee, and it doesn't have one mind. And if you treat them like a boss, you will make them nervous, <laughs> right? They want you to run the company, and they're there to kind of be a sounding board to you. On the PE side, there's a far greater risk of just treating that general partner like a boss. And I'm pretty sure some of them like to be treated that way. And again, you need to be careful because in a VC board, it's harder to get confused because you have five people saying five different things like, okay, I don't have one boss. Um, In a PE thing, you've got you know three people who aren't talking the general partner who did the investment who talks a lot and maybe an independent or two that don't talk that much it's very easy to start treating that person like the boss rather than a board member and that's a it's a situation i think you need to watch because in the end even they don't want you to treat them like a boss they want you to run the company and to use them as a sounding board but i would say to to summarize that part of the answer is yeah the Board dynamics are are tricky for CEOs in both cases, but they're very different on the PE side. The last operational difference I I, I remembered is the model. Like when you raise money from a VC, you show them a three-year financial model and everybody knows it's a little inflated everybody discounts it so you get into this game of like should it be 20% more aggressive than we think cuz they're going to discount it 20% and if i give them you know if i tell them what i'm actually going to do they're going to get underrepresented and cuz they're going to so so you have this kind of game theory of uh, numbers inflation but that happens in a vc round and everybody kind of knows it and nobody really says it and rare is the ceo stupid enough and i have seen this happen where literally after raising round they're like oh that was a garbage plan the real plan is this which is a huge mistake, <laughs> by the way, not to be done. Provided you don't make that egregious mistake, if you just say, gosh, you know, we're having trouble hitting the plan that we showed you in the financing round because we didn't hire some salespeople or something went wrong, that's kind of the norm. And look, some companies get ahead of their plan. I'm not saying that doesn't happen either. But I would say the general pattern in VC is you put out an optimistic plan, they discount it for you (laughs) when they make their own internal model and their own calculations. And then in my mind, I hate to put it in a black and white fashion, but it's kind of forgotten about. Like you're just like, okay, just tell me about the plan going forward. You know, what can we sell this year? What can we sell next quarter? They're not kind of whipping out the plan and looking at it and saying, Well, two years ago you promised you'd be this big. Uh that just in my experience doesn't happen. On the PE side, it does. It's a huge difference. So I remember one time I was working with a PE company and I had this kind of go forward, the only quarter that matters is this quarter mindset, you know, like, hey, what are we gonna do this quarter? What's coming next? And everything else is in the past. Who cares? And a PE partner basically said, well, you know, we underwrote a model that said you were going to sell this much this year. And if you're behind last quarter, we expect you to catch that up. And I'd never in 25 years on the VC side heard that. I was frankly shocked. I was like, catch up like to what? <laughs> and they're like, we underwrote a model. And that, those are the words that made it light up in my head. It was like, oh, You think about this differently. I think the VCs use the operating plan, in my opinion, to kind of try and figure out valuation, how much are they worth to pay, how aggressively they are going to hire salespeople to grow. It's kind of a compass pointing you in a rough direction, whereas this notion that we underwrote a model and we need you to hit that model, and if you're behind, you need to catch up, I think is much more of a PE creation. And look, it makes sense. As soon as that light bulb went off, it makes sense because... VC is fundamentally a hits business, right? I think we've talked about this before, but if you take, you know, your average top-tier VC fund, yank out the top two investments, the IRR will fall from 36% to 12 not worth the risk premium and the lack of liquidity, right? On the PE side, it doesn't work that way. In, in baseball, in some sense, you know, VCs are elephant hunters, whereas, you know, PEs are rabbit hunters or deer hunters, right? They, they need to go get more hits every day. If you want to switch to baseball, uh, the, the baseball metaphor would be that, you know, VCs are Kind of grand slams. They're looking for the big home run, grand slam hits. Whereas PE's just want a lot of singles and doubles. Maybe a lot of doubles. <laughs> They'll take a single, but they can't take a strikeout, right? Because they're not offsetting the strikeouts with home runs. So when you when you realize that, it kind of explains everything. That these people are in a fundamentally different business. That the VCs, particularly early stage VCs, are trying to find the mega winners that will pay back the fund. And PE people are just grinding out doubles. And I can't have people strike out for that reason. That actually explains a lot of the differences in these models, right? That's why they have the best practices, because they can't afford a strikeout, right?
0: Uh, To follow up on that, how do you think this affects the initial due diligence of PE and VC funds?
1: It's another great question. You know, we talked about how P's are different on the, on the kind of operational side, like once you're working with one, but what's it like before you work with one? And, and, and the answer is my opinion. Look, I think the management level kind of qualitative diligence feels very much the same. They ask about the team. They ask about the business. They ask about the TAM. They ask about the technology and sustainable advantage. All those things feel pretty familiar. I think the difference is... I think PE firms have more staff than VC firms. I mean, again, Andreessen would be an exception because they have a pretty big staff to help them with stuff. But a lot of even top-tier VC firms are, are just you know a handful of general partners and a couple of junior folks, and that's it. Right? These are not large organizations. And on the PE side, they tend to be right. There's a lot of people trying to. There's principals and vice presidents, and and people trying to work their way up to make general partner. And consequently, on the PE side, to me, they do a lot more legwork, a lot more depth. I mean, the two biggest differences I've seen are, one, they'll tend to recalculate all your numbers. Like, one time a PE firm was like, oh, don't bother telling me your CAC ratio, your l 2 to CAC. We're, we're going to calculate it ourselves. <laughs> like, we don't care how you calculate it. Um, and, and I think on VC, that's different. VC will say, okay, so you say your CAC is 1.3. What's included? What's excluded? They'll ask you how you calculate it, and you need to explain, you know, do you put customer success in your CAC or not, and why. And if you have reasonable answers, I think you can kind of spin your numbers or or talk about your numbers. On the PE side, I mean, this is maybe extreme, but it's like, uh, we've got our way of looking at things. We're going to have the MBAs grind it out, and, and we'll tell you what your CAC is. Thanks very much. The other thing I'd say that I've seen PE firms do is hire other firms, like I think Ernst & Young has a division called Parthenon that is used in the PE world, Well, they'll do some level of diligence themselves, but even business-level diligence, like number crunching, like, let's go find a hypothesis on the data. Like, we've got this company, it's doing okay, does it have segments of its customer base that it's ignoring that are really profitable, and they've never figured it out? Right? And I don't see VC people doing that. Right, It's kind of not their business. They're trying to invest in healthy, growing businesses anyway. They're just trying to get a piece of the rising star, whereas P.E. is, in general, trying to improve the operational performance of the business. And one of the best ways to do that is go find something that's working and being ignored. And you can hire people like Parthenon to go do that for you. And they do, in my opinion, very high quality work. I've seen some of these reports. I'm like, wow, this is good. And I think at bigger firms, they may do it with their own staff, right? But at smaller firms, they they may hire a third-party kind of market research and analysis firm. That's the other thing they'll do, by the way, is they'll actually do their own market research on you, right? Like you're going to show up and say, our customers love us. Do you want to talk to five customers? And on the PE side, they're going to say, we already did. In fact, we talked to 20.
0: <laughs> and you're going to be like, whoa. What about the company's strategy discussion? Do both VCs and Ps have the same type of due diligence and same discussions with management?
1: I think there's probably one difference I've seen. I I think the VC philosophy, and again, look, we're speaking in broad strokes, right? And I like to make things black and white to make them clear. Uh, and, And reality has a lot of shades of gray. So with that disclaimer, I think the philosophy of a VC is I am your partner to try and help you build your business. I think the philosophy of a PE is I'm going to buy this business and it's going to be my business when I've bought it, and we're going to use our playbook to make it worth money. Look, there are growth stage PEs who look more like VCs, right? So you get a crossover in the middle. But I think the fundamental thing is that the PE wants to be your business partner helping you build your business, and the PE is an owner, and it's their business, and they want to hire staff to go build their business for them. I think, by the way, stock options are a fascinating contrast case between VC and PE, um, we'll come back to due diligence in a minute, but th- this, ex- this demonstrates the point to me. Look, people ask, can you make money as an operating executive in the PE world? Can you only really make big money in the VC world? The answer is you can make a lot of money in the PE world. But the difference is, in VC land, the stock options are like, hey, we're going to vest them over four years. We're going to try and give you a way to own them. Right, which is tricky these days, maybe we'll do a 10-year tail or something. Right? But the idea is that the spirit is if you come and join the company and work, we want to give you some shares for your contribution. And if you leave, you can keep those shares. And, and that's okay because it's a small world and life is long and we all want to be friends. That's kind of the VC, you know, how can I be helpful sort of perspective on it. The PE perspective is you make money if, only if, and when I make money right so so what's much more kind of hard ass for lack of a term doesn't mean you can't make money they'll give you great stakes uh, I think PEs also concentrate the equity in top management more so than the VCs, right? The VCs are a little more democratic. Hey, everybody from the CEO to the receptionist should have some shares. I think the PE people are like, no, let's just find out about the top, <laughs> you know, the top 20 people, the top 20%. You no, know, we want no peanut butter, right? We want to concentrate these shares because we want the people in charge to have a lot of skin in the game. And, and back to my other comment of if you make money, if, only if, and when we make money, is PE firms typically have buybacks on the share options. They might either say your options vest at liquidity. So they could do the vesting schedule that says when we sell the company for more than two and a half times what we paid for it, you vest. Or maybe you'll vest over five years, not four, another PE thing. But the time-based vesting, we have a buyback right on it if you leave early. They really expect you to sign up for the tour of duty and do the tour of duty (laughs) and be successful. And if you do it, you'll make a lot of money if you're one of those top end people. Just again, I think it reflects the difference. And and these are like the small things, but they're not so small, right? Go work at a PE firm for three years, get in a fight with your boss and quit and discover you have no equity. That's not a small thing, right? But these are the differences between uh, the types of firms. So when it comes back to due diligence as a uh, and, and in my opinion, the reason I'm going over all these examples is it all kind of ties together. Once you see the big picture, kind of all these little seemingly unrelated details make sense. And now let's go back to, to due diligence. I think the difference I would say is the VC, in my opinion, is trying to be a responsible steward of the limited partner's money right? Hey, I'm a limited partner. I'm a Harvard Foundation, Yale Foundation, you know, some family foundation. Uh, You gave me money. Uh, I am investing it on your behalf. I need to make sure I've done due diligence to make sure that I've done so responsibly. So we go vet the team, we vet the numbers, we'll look at things. But that's the philosophy. Everything looks good, but we're going to go in and do an extra check to make sure. If you were thinking of it as buying a house, we're doing a housing inspection to make sure there weren't any problems that we didn't see because we want to buy the house. We want to make sure there are no problems and we'll buy the house. The PE perspective is different because in some ways, VCs make money on the sell. PEs make money on the buy. A friend of mine owned a car lot in Florida and he was like 16. He worked on the lot and he taught me in the used car business, You make money on the buy. Uh, A a 2004, you know, Ford Taurus or Honda Accord is worth what it's worth in the market. You can't change that, but how much you pay for it, you can change. You make money on the buy. And certainly, old school PE was that way. That's how you get, you know, companies selling at 0.7 times revenue. But even modern PE, they still know they make money on the buy, right? Because they're not shooting for a 10X or a 20X or a 100X or a 1000X as these guys sometimes don't get on the VC side. They're shooting for a 3X or a 5X, right? And and when you're shooting for a 3X or a 5X, you can't make mistakes first, as, as we've talked about, hence the best practices, blah, blah, blah. But gosh, if I could buy it for 80 instead of 100 and I'm going to sell it for 240, you know, hey, I just got a better return on investment, a materially better IRR. So that's the difference. And and the buzzword for this is called retrading. And it was a word, once again, in 25 years on VC, I had never heard the word retrade. Uh, and then I end up in PE land and you'll hear it. It's a word with a negative connotation. The idea is you retraded the deal. Say, hey, Asner, I'll buy your house for a million bucks. I do the inspection. Uh, you know, I think a VC, if they came back and found a bunch of stuff that needed to be done, they'd say, I don't want to buy the house anymore. The PE will come back and say, I'll buy the house, but for 800000 because there's $200,000 of repair work to do. And that's the difference, right? For the VC, it was like, hey, I thought this was a great house in a great neighborhood and it's not, you know, no thanks. I, I, I don't think VCs retrade deals right? Because they're not trying to make money on the buy. They thought it was one thing. And if it's not, maybe they don't want it anymore. Maybe they do. But the PE will tend to see that as a, hey, I still want this thing. It didn't totally invalidate my hypothesis. No one's There's no fraud on the books. But I'm not going to pay as much for it because you kind of warranted in some way that there was something wasn 't wrong that I found wrong, and therefore i 'm going to take the opportunity to retrade it now you know particularly old school p e people might even kind of invent reasons to retrade it, and this is sometimes why p e people get a bad name because certain firms may actually kind of make up things or just, hey, there's a chip in the paint over there that doesn't actually matter and no one ever said there wasn't. Uh, but they'll come back and really start kind of niggling uh, about little things that they didn't care about just to try and knock the price down. And that is, you know, that deserves a, a negative connotation in that case. But, but the other case, I'm not sure. Would you rather have a deal destroyed or would you rather have a deal at a lower price reflecting the fact that, oh gosh, you know, the roost needs replacing and, the, and that costs 100000
0: bucks. This was a great summary. Was there anything we missed in regards to the difference in approaches of uh, VCs and PE funds?
1: You know, the thing I think we missed would just be the numbers. You know, I haven't had time to research them. But look, the odds of selling your company to a PE firm are, are, are probably, what, 10 times the odds of going public? right? And five times the odds of selling to a strategic, right? Like this is the new exit in Silicon Valley. Why is it the new exit? Because the IPO bar has been raised from 30 billion to 300 billion. And the IPO timeframe has gone from four years to 13, 14 years. And that's changed everything. And in my mind people don't talk about that enough because everyone's, you know, hey, we're going to go public. Are we shooting for an IPO? Is the strategic going to swoop down and buy us for some amazing multiple? I mean, those things happen. That's great when they do. But if you just want to play the odds, right? Like, and almost by stage, if you get to 30 million, what are your odds of going public versus getting bought by PE? Uh, and the last, time, like I tried to do these at some point, and I, it was, I think it was thirty million. I said even at thirty million, you're four to five times more likely to get bought by PE than go public. It was, it was something like that because people will tend to say, oh, if we get to thirty million, we can you know get anywhere. it's like not true. A lot of bad stuff can happen between thirty and three hundred.
0: I've seen both generalist PE and VC funds with software being just one of the several areas they invest in, and software specialist funds that only focus in um, well software. Which one of them would you prefer to sell to?
1: Well, I guess there's two scenarios. And this is an important part of selling a company to a PE firm. Do you and your team want to stick around? And do they want you to stick around? And and those are independent variables. For example, my last company, my mission was to get the thing sold. I joined, the VCs hired me, and the job to do was to get them liquid. They were old funds. They'd been in the investment for a while, and uh, we wanted to get the thing liquid. So, So to me, my mission was to get the thing liquid. So when I got it liquid, I was done. And I had no interest in staying on, despite liking the new owners. They're great people, but it just wasn't what I was there for, right? Whereas on the other hand, sometimes the founder loves the business, wants to keep growing the business, and they just need kind of a, what one banker called it, a shareholder rotation, <laughs> which is a great <laughs> euphemism, uh, where we want to rotate out the old shareholders, rotate in some new shareholders, and kind of start over. And in those cases, you know, you may want to stick around and, and they may want you to stick around. I think that's really the first answer to the question because if you don't want to stick around, frankly, I mean, as a manager with fiduciary responsibility, you should want to sell to the highest bidder right? I mean, I know there's other considerations. Who's going to take care of the employees? Who's going to take care of the customers, right? Are they going to show up and slash costs and fire everybody? But you have to remember, as I would say, if you want to buy the house, when you buy the house, you can paint it purple if you want to, right? It's your house. <laughs> right? Like when you sell it to somebody, they can do and will do what they want to do. And if what they want to do is align with what you want to do, and you want to stick around and do it, and they want you to stick around and do it, then it really starts to matter who you're selling to. And by the way, there's a lot of game theory about do you want to stick around, don't you want to stick around in that process. I'd say be very careful. If a PE firm asks you if you're willing to stick around or want to stick around, say no at your own peril. Because I think the correct answer to the question is if you guys want me to, I will. From a game theory viewpoint, I believe there's only one correct answer to that question, (laughs) which is if you guys want me to, I'm in. I love the business. I love the customers. I love the market. And if you don't want me to, that's fine. And by the way, the VCs on your board, if you're a VC-backed company, you know, they're not going to let you sell to somebody at a lower price just because, you know, they have a growth thesis versus an EBITDA thesis because they have a responsibility, right? And these things aren't just opinions. I mean, they have a fiduciary responsibility to their limited partners, right? And they can't say, oh, we want it to be nice to the employees, so we sold it for, you know, $20 million less. That doesn't work. So all other things being equal, I personally would rather sell to a SaaS specialist because I think they're going to be able to help you more. They're going to know more. You'll have a better network of fellow portfolio company CEOs to kind of you know, share ideas with. But to me, you know, who you sell to in the end is going to be a function of the process you use to sell the company and, and who comes up with the most money. And you know, maybe there'll be the situation where two offers are close enough. But usually, look, it's an interesting point. When you're in that situation near the finish line and two offers are close enough that it doesn't really matter which one you pick, in my mind, the factor that starts to weigh in is certainty of deal. Like this guy who's offering a little less, did a lot more diligence, a lot more homework, Than this person who still has some things to check out and what are they going to find and will they retrade? Will they be off? How do they behave during the process? Who do we actually trust to do this deal? Because if the price starts not to be a difference, certainty of close becomes massive. Right, and by the way, this is how some PE firms win. They're good citizens in the process. They come in deliberately on the low side. Why? Because they make money on the buy, right? And if I can shave off five or ten million on the price, because we've been good the whole time, we've hit every deadline, we've followed your process. The other guys have been trying to disrupt your process, and therefore, even though we don't have the highest dollar offer. We have the highest certainty to close because, by the way, if you go with the other guys, we're going to shut down our project. And this, I believe, is a bluff. But if I were them, I'd say, if you don't take our offer now and take somebody else's offer, we're going to shut down our process and go on to the next deal. I never lived through that, so I don't know how that plays out, but my hunch is it's a bluff. But it's a scary bluff, because if you think the other person doesn't have certainty of close, now you've you've lost your bird in the hand and your bird in the bush. And, and when your job is to make money for investors, that's a, that's a pretty scary proposition.
0: Off the top of your head, can you name a few software-focused PE funds?
1: Before I answer this, by the way, if someone in the audience is actually thinking about selling their company and you're thinking of selling it to PE, I would strongly advise you to get a banker because there are more of these firms than you could possibly imagine. Literally in the warm-up to this call, as Aaron and I were talking, and I knew of a firm that he hadn't heard of, and they're managing $5 billion in assets, right? And this happens all the time. This is not a rare occurrence. It's like, who are they? Never heard of them, and they have $5 billion. So there are a lot of these firms out there. You know, everyone's familiar, I think, with kind of the big names on the growth equity side. Tama Bravo, Inside Venture Partners, Vista. Those are some of the big names that I think everybody knows. I think there's a you know people like XLKKR. There's scores and scores of others. So don't just think you can only sell to one of the big names. There's guys who specialize in mid-market like Riverside where I has some friends or Parker Gale where I'm on a board. There are people who specialize in really, really big stuff. Like, you're going to meet people whose minimum check size is $300 billion. <laughs> and, like, your company's not worth their minimum check size, right? Because they're managing that much money. So, um, it's very important to have somebody help kind of guide you. you know. I mean, some of the other big names like you know Warburg Pincus is famous for being a big firm. Uh, Summit Partners is famous for being big. The guys at Silver Lake obviously were huge. Sumeru was a spinoff of Silver Lake. I've worked with those guys. Um, there's a lot of people out there. And I think the answer is, if you're going to sell to PE, you need a banker really for two reasons. One, to navigate this process for you because everybody does it for a living. Those PE firms buy companies for a living. It's their job. They're very good at it. And if you're doing it for the first time, that's inherently unfair. The other issue is just you need a tour guide because I could name 25 other PE firms They're with all different flavors and sizes. And you need somebody to help you figure out who it's worth talking to, who buys companies in your space, who has a reputation for just throwing an early offer out and then not really being interested, who throws a high offer, but they're known to retrade the offers. All these things are, are reasons why you'd need a banker. So look, you, you can just go Google top PE firms and apologies to any friends who I've missed uh, at the dozens of PE firms I work with. But it's a big, big world. And the real message for the audience is it's a far bigger world than you know of. When I sold my last company, we had 60 people on the short list. Not the short list. I call it the medium list, but there was like a long, long list of every firm you could talk to. And I think we mailed out 60 SIMS, Confidential Information memorandum. We've got 10 LOIs. Right, these are the kind of numbers you're talking about, right? And I don't think that was a particularly large process, right? I think it was a fairly typical process. And the bankers swore to God that that was not spray and pray right? Like we're just, oh, give everybody a book. It's like, no, no, we're going to look at which people get a book and which don't, and we're going to be thoughtful about this. But we really think there are 60 firms who, who have a viable interest in buying this business. And the other thing I'd say is that don't, don't forget a lot of VC firms are kind of crossed over. The VCs don't necessarily like giving away all the downstream equity to growth PE, right? In some ways, if I were a VC, I might view them as parasites. So, so a lot of them have created their own growth funds. Right. In the early days, I think they worked with their own preferred growth stage VCs, and then I think the bigger ones certainly have created their own growth funds. And the reason they're separate, by the way, which may not be obvious to people, is they need to have different expectations for the limited partners. Right, A classic you know, Sequoia numbered fund, Sequoia 12, Sequoia 20, whatever they're up to now, that fund is, is an early stage fund that's aiming at you know, swing for the fences, home run investments, and long timeframes to liquidity, whereas a growth fund is looking to double or triple their money maybe in you know, four to five years. That's why the big VCs have different, that's why they have their own growth funds, because they, they need a different set of expectations for the limited partners who invest in those funds versus the traditional kind of firm name space number funds.
0: Dave, thank you very much for this uh, fantastic interview.